Exodus chapter 18, right away, Jethro visits Moses is the title of the chapter, and we won't spend a great deal of time on all the points, especially the second half of the chapter we'll save for a discussion of different issues. Uh, But you'll recall that uh, we talked last week about how God leads and the methods that he used to lead his people and what principles from that we could take for how he would like to lead us. And that's what we're doing here in the book of Exodus. We are not under the impression that we are going to recreate the journey or that we are uh, going to recreate the nation state of Israel in the land of Canaan, which is to the west of the Jordan River and uh, on the east end of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, We're not going to do that. That is not our mandate. In fact, our mandate as Christians is actually a great deal larger than that. That is to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus. The Israelites did not have that mandate. Their mandate was to represent God to the world as a nation, as a people, God's word, God's character, God. Yahweh God, the ruler of the universe, uh, they are going to represent him in that way. But they were not really given evangelism message. And it's worth uh, remembering sometimes that some of the Old Testament law patterns are not replicated in the New Testament for a reason. They're not our mission. We're not creating a Christian nation state, but we are making disciples of Jesus around the world. Now, if you will look at uh, Matthew 18, verse 1. Now, Jethro, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Now, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, that they're moving toward for the events that come in just a couple of chapters, the giving of the Ten Commandments, it is mentioned earlier on in the book of Exodus that Moses had was familiar with that territory because he had herded sheep there. You recall that Moses had escaped from Egypt to save his life because of what he had done. And after being raised as a Pharaoh's son, he had to get out of there. He had to move away and he went to Midian. Midian falls over somewhere across that desert, over across a body of water, really, in what is now Jordan, in the modern state of Jordan, just north of Saudi Arabia. If you're familiar with those names, it's because you've been paying attention to the news. These nations are pretty much in the news today, and Midian was incorporated by what is now called Jordan. Midian was a son of Abraham by a different wife. So he is not part of the chosen people. He is a relative many centuries before, but not connected. And just Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest there. 
the priest of Midian. Now we've talked about this before, but just briefly let me say again this, that each of the ethnic identities, each of the people, the tribes, the ethne, if you will, which is the word that is used in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus, literally the Greek word, uh, is ethne, the, all the peoples, uh, the people groups. The people groups uh, each had their own god. The Egyptians had their gods, which God, Jehovah God, Yahweh God, had made a very strong point of proving to them they had their supreme god, and then they had some other gods to go with it. But it was understood, and there's a word for it called henotheism, which means that everybody just kind of has their own god. It's kind of like you hear people say sometimes today, well, that's your truth, I have my truth which is really kind of a contradiction in terms. It's pretty silly, really, because uh, the truth is truth. I mean, if somebody in your arithmetic class at school, if your teacher, some kid says, well, that's your truth, teacher. Uh, that's not my truth. You, got, <laughs> you probably wouldn't accept that too well because a lot of things really don't work that way. Now, if you want to say blue is the best color in the world, and somebody else says, no, green is the best color in the world, then you could say, well, that's your truth. But that's not really truth anyhow. That's just a way of using a word in a kind of a silly way. Truth is truth. It's either truth. There are different versions of the truth. There are different uh, impressions of the truth. But either God is God, the creator God, or he's not. There's different versions of God and different names to put on God. But he is what he is, and it's not really negotiable. Say, well, you got yours, we got mine, and uh, there you go. Because this is what God was actually doing here in history. And this is what God is going to do in the future with Jesus. This all comes out as the story unfolds. That there is a God who created everything. There is a God who has a name, can be approached, should be approached, should be related to. And we can know him. Ignorance of that God does not necessarily mean somebody is deserving of punishment or death. But it does mean that you can't simply say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. So, nanner, nanner, here we are. It doesn't work that way in the real world. It never has, really. But Jethro was the priest of Midian. And this is important because as this story goes on, you see what happened to Jethro. Now, I would say that father-in-laws and in-laws can be a problem. Now, in this case, of course, Moses had a very good relationship with his father-in-law. And verse 7 goes on. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Now, I don't know if there's anything to read into this, but... His wife was there too. And he, he greeted his father-in-law and gave him a hit, like, like a Middle East kiss on whatever they do. And you've seen it on television, even if you don't do it yourself. But uh, the, the men, men do that in the, in, the, in the Middle Eastern culture, of course, they do that. There's a, there's a, um, and there's even a reference in the New Testament to holy kisses. Well, that's not related to anything that we might think about as a kiss, but I just think that this story has a little interesting beat to it where Moses rushes out and he meets his father-in-law and he greets him with a kiss and he's very happy to see him. And his wife is what? 
standing there uh, or something like that. Verse 8 says, Moses told his father-in-law about everything what the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. This is worship, and it was a conversion experience, a genuine conversion experience, a very powerful one. If you look at the context, this is the priest of Midian, a priest of a whole people who was dedicated to leading them and teaching them about their God has become convinced that Yahweh God or Jehovah God is the one true God and deserving of worship. As a radical turnaround as a story in the New Testament about the Apostle Paul in uh, Acts chapter 9, a Damascus Road experience where he had this radical turnaround experience in coming to Jesus and this is clearly what's happening here. Now the context of course isn't the same for us. There's no implication in the New Testament that you should uh, do a sacrifice and do a worship in this way but that is the form of worship they had. Now this might be really instructive to us is that uh, God honors those who worship him with a sincere heart whatever the context and whatever their method. Now, if it's a matter of ignorance and needing to be taught, that's called discipleship. But I think many people will testify to the fact that they came to Christ in ways that are considered a bit unorthodox today. You hear stories today coming out of the Middle East where it's really a deadly, uh, deadly thing to profess Christ openly. But you hear stories coming out of that about people who've had encounters and dreams and they've, become, they've come to know Jesus in ways that we don't even think about. Uh, China comes to mind as one of those sort of things when the 1949, when the communist revolution finally gained its total victory in China, all the missionaries uh, were booted out and the churches were closed for the most part, a few not. Uh, but the church grew. Christians, people came to Christ. How did they do that? It's just because God is not really stuck on the formalities. God is not really stuck on the methodologies that we sometimes get stuck on. What we grew up with or what we have come to believe is the way that you're supposed to do things and the way that you're supposed to confess your faith in Christ. I know a lady, well, my wife and I, she was a member of the church we pastored formerly and she... Uh, recently just died at the age of 95. She was Presbyterian background, and uh, she was a sister of Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. I don't know if you know that story, but Ruth never would get baptized. She was baptized as a baby by her own father, and she said, that's enough. I am not. Even though Billy Graham was a Baptist evangelist, his wife never got baptized as a believer. And uh, Rosa, her sister, was a member of our church, and same with her. She says, I was 
born again in my mother's womb. And I am not going to say that I wasn't. Now that was one of the most godly women. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that that person isn't a disciple of Jesus because she had a different view of that. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, who believes similarly. I don't agree with James Montgomery Boyce, a, pre, a, a well-known Presbyterian pastor who God used mightily. George Whitfield, one of the great evangelists of the, uh, of the uh, 18th century. I don't agree with him uh, on this subject of baptism and the spiritual rebirth. But I'm not smart enough to say or powerful enough to say, and God has not given me the role to say, so therefore they're not Christians because they have a different view of baptism and how one is born again. I, we'd practice a method here. But let's get honest, it's a method. It's not the core of our faith. We're not going to go to war against anybody who names Jesus because they have a different view of things that are mat, uh, really matters of practice, orthopraxy, if you will, been one of the great problems of church hostility against other churches over the centuries is that the wrong issues tend to rise to the top and people divide into denominations over methodologies. Now sometimes it simply has to be done that way because you can't, you got to do things, you got to get things done, you got to have a practice of the faith. Not everybody agrees with us in the way we do the Lord's Supper. I don't really care to even analyze these different views publicly but I know there are many people who have different understandings of that in different churches I don't really care this is just the way we do it I am not going to war against a fellow disciple of Jesus because they view things differently in regard to the elements of the Lord's Supper I don't know why anybody would really there are so many important things to focus on and so much work to do now Jethro made a sacrifice and said, praise be to God, praise be to the Lord, Yahweh. The man was a born-again guy, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the story tells it. He was born again, but even though that term wasn't even around at that time. He came to believe in God. And then he went back home. He didn't necessarily become a part of their fellowship. And that's not what God ever mandated for the Israelites to do. Bring everybody to the land of Canaan in the whole world. Wasn't the mission. The mission was to represent God. And then they would proceed to live it out in the way that God ordained for them to live it out. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge. You know what, I'm going to stop here with this story. And we're going to do some of the applications here. And uh, I'm not going to spend any time on the teaching or the division of labor, the orthopraxy of leadership and organization that follows in the second half of that because I think that would be uh, taking on too much to try to get through and uh, make sense of. Uh, so we're just going to stop at the end of verse 12 where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, becomes a believer. And I would just one other factual thing there. Uh, Moses' wife and children were most likely sent to Midian because Moses was well aware of the difficulties that were going to, they were going to go through. This was like a combat experience for them. I mean, he's leading the people. He had no Moses never knew from day to day whether Pharaoh was going to lop his head off. 
uh, that was part of the deal. When God called him to lead his people, Moses knew there was a target on his back, and he obviously didn't want his family subjected to this. Now, whether there was any other kind of problems related to that, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody does know. Uh, There's no record of it, uh, but there's certainly... They were with him when they started, but then Moses sent them home to live with her family uh, in the meantime. And that's one of the reasons he brought them there. Okay, let's do some, uh, I want to give you a couple of application points here. And they're not in your bulletin, but they are in the overhead. The takeaways for life are uh, going to, I'm going to deal with just the ones that relate to the part of this passage that we dealt with today. Number one, your relationships are unique to you and God has planted you there. Um, I think that's important in this story because Moses had a relationship with his father-in-law that nobody else did. God used Moses not just to lead the people of Israel, but he used him in his own family. There's an important point in that because I think your relationships are important. I think sometimes we feel like, well, we need somebody else to do this, to influence the people I know for God. If I could just get them to this or just get them to do that, then that that would be okay. But the fact is your relationships are unique to you. You're the only person who has a relationship with the people who live next to you, You do have a relationship with your neighbors, don't you? I mean, that is very important. I I think sometimes there's a little bit of a problem with uh, with people who say they're interested in evangelism and and even missionary work and so on, but they got they care nothing about their own neighbors. That really doesn't make sense, right? We get that. But so your neighbors are your neighbors, not mine. And your family members are your family members, not mine. And I am thankful for that. I don't want your family members, for one thing, and you don't want mine. <laughs> they, uh, now, it's true that other people can influence people you know where you can, but the primary relationship is who you already know. This is called salt and light. Jesus said it. You're salt and light in a world. How does salt influence the meat around it, the vegetables around it, the food around it, or whatever you're doing with the salt, or the, even the water? Well, it just influences it right around it. That's how it works. That's how the gospel is gossiped into the world. That's how the character of God is made manifest to the world. You can put on the best religious show in the world or have the best evangelism strategy in the world to knock on every door eight times and and, uh, pound them until they get their guns out and shoot at you because you're such an irritation. You can do that if you want, but that's what cults do. Authentic disciples of Jesus don't do that. You know that your mission is already there. The people, you know, start by praying for them. Influencing them for God. Moses had a powerful testimony. All he had to do was give his testimony. All he had to do was share what God had done through him, with them, the people of Israel. And Jethro was impressed. So I guess the important question is, does anybody want to hear what you got to say about God? It can be pretty subtle. I recall when I first uh, became a believer, Margie and I were living in Reno, 
Nevada, and I was a student at the University of Nevada and going to college on a GI Bill, and uh, one of the students approached me afterwards. This was soon after I came to Christ, and one of the other students in the class approached me afterward and said to me something along the lines of, um, I hope you don't mind me asking, but something's different about you. I don't know, that's the very first time it dawned on me that it isn't my strategy that's doing anybody any good here. It's being there, engaging them, being involved with them, and sharing what I think. That's all that it was. And that's when it first dawned on me that this is, this is what this means, just to be there. And if people aren't interested in God, they're not going to be interested in what you have to say about it. But if they are, you're the first they're going to hear. That's what we're doing in this world. Number two, your background is unique to you and God wants to use it. God used Moses because he had set him up for this. God wants to use you to set you up. First point was relationship. God is setting you up. He's got a plan for you. Whatever your education, whatever your background, whatever your lack of education, whatever your skill set, whatever your life experiences, God has superintended your life to be useful. Look for it this year. Where you are, what your gifts are, what your skills are. Sometimes we just think, oh, if God will just give me this gift to do this. God has given you so much that you could already be using. And the problem is sometimes we're just not using it. We're looking over at somebody else and saying, I'd rather do that. Moses went through a lot to get where he was. He was uh, a fugitive. He had gone through all kinds of things. And then God nailed him to be the leader of these people. And he didn't want to do it. And maybe God has called you to do something that... You're not doing because you think that's not what you would prefer. But if God has prepared you for something with education, circumstances, skills, abilities, personality, put it to work. Just as simple as that, God will bless it. Number three, Lone Ranger heroes are not God's way. Both Moses and Jesus were team players. Now this is the part where... Jethro comes into the picture and gives him advice, and we didn't really spend any time on that, and I'll pick that up later. But I would just say this, that sometimes we are led to believe that the real heroes of God's work are people that go off and do things all by themselves. Lonely heroes. Moses was anything but a lonely hero. Jesus was anything but a lonely hero. Before Jesus did even one miracle, and taught one sentence he formed his team the disciples were called before he did anything team player that's God's way we're not intended to be all by ourselves so sometimes when you feel intimidated well I can't really do that I can't do that and I can't do that because boy uh, I'm going to need help yeah you and Moses and Jesus too that's right you are going to need help and praise God you don't have to be a lonely hero a lone ranger out riding off with your six guns a-blazing all by your lonesome. Not God's plan. God doesn't work that way. Number four, our reputation precedes us and God's reputation is tied to ours. People of Israel were known 
in that part of the world for what God had done in them. And this is what God's mission for them was going to be. I want you to represent me, my values. My law is so that you can live according to the way that the world needs to see in you. Our reputation precedes us and God's reputation is tied to ours. It's a grace. God has given us the ability to represent him, the privilege. Unfortunately, there's a sort of a cost with that. Uh, your neighbors, your extended family, you know, if they, uh, if they know that you're a follower of Jesus, a Christian, they're going to think of you when that subject comes into their mind, into their hearts. This is why it matters how the church relates to society. The larger church and the local church relates to society. It matters because that's what they see. I'm sure you've heard this expression, you might be the only Bible some people ever read, you, personally. Now, you can take too much on yourself. It's not really about you, but we are the people of God. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about how we view Muslims or how we view anybody. That's the same issue. This is what happens. People view you in a way that you live and your people live and other people that profess what you believe. That's just the way it works. You can't do anything about it. You can't command people to think differently about Christians if that's what they see or about Muslims if that's what they see. Oh, you can command them all right, but everybody's going to snicker behind your back because it doesn't work. Number five, and the last challenge are you a learner and a seeker? Open-minded is good, but so is truth. Now again, this is, uh, relates to two parties in this story. Jethro was an open-minded leader of the Midianites in a spiritual world of the Midianites. But yet, when he saw God at work, he changed his mind. Now, he may have added it to it with some kind of imperfections, but nevertheless... He started worshiping the one true God. He said, now I know this is the God. He was open-minded. He was ready for that. And when Jethro, who also taught Moses some things in the second half of the chapter, Moses said, yeah, that's a good idea. How about you this year? Are you a learner and a grower? Or you got it all together? A know-it-all? Or you just, uh, just kind of plow over it and don't learn anything new. Have you learned anything new? Have you made any new friends this last year? Have you learned any new things? Have you had any new experiences? It's a good time to be thinking about this coming year in that regard. You're humble enough to learn. You're humble enough to change your mind, to get off of a path and on to a different one. That's what Jethro did, and that's actually what Moses did as well. Stories in the Bible, the Bible is full of stories like that. People who changed their minds and got on a different path. Stand and join me in prayer. And uh, Peter, we will uh, we'll just close in prayer and, and save the last song for uh, next week, if that works out. Sunday school classes are going on today, too. We're back in the uh, spring semester for that. Father, we are so grateful that we can be followers of you. Thank you for these stories 
in your word that teach us about your ways of relating. Thank you for Moses, a humble man, a man who learned. For Jethro, an example of someone who learned and changed his mind. Thank you for being the creator God of the universe, for revealing yourself, and for being patient and tolerant, but yet full of truth and light and the absolute ruler of this world. Thank you for being who you are, Lord, and we want to follow you. And we can do that through Jesus. Amen.